Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are a God who speaks. You are not a God who is silent, but you are a God who speaks, who wishes to communicate to us, who wishes to meet with us and to change us. And so right now, Lord God, I bring this sermon before you. I bring my words before you. I don't quite know what I'm going to say. <laughs> but I bring these words before you, and I trust you to work in and through them. I humble myself to you and say, just speak through me. Set aside what I've planned and do whatever you feel is right. In Jesus' name, amen. As you're probably aware, at the moment, we're running through a, a sermon series on the subject of grace. Let's face it, it's a pretty big subject. I, one of my sort of vaguest definitions of grace is that the grace of God is his givingness, that all is gift. But if that's the case, if our entire relationship with God is one of him giving, is one of grace, then that means basically every sermon that's ever preached is on the subject of grace. Because that's who he is. That's what he's like on the most fundamental level. But as I've been preparing this sermon, one thought has kept coming back to me time and again. And it's a sobering one. It's that all too often, the church, and I don't just mean OCF, I'm meaning the church worldwide, does not quite have the same reputation. One of my favorite writers, Philip Yancey, wrote a book, What's So Amazing About Grace? It's one of my favorites, and I've quoted it a thousand and one times. But in that book, he told one story that absolutely stuck with me. One of Yancey's closest friends ministered to people who were on the streets, people who were in dire situations. And Yancey's friend, he met one day with a lady, a prostitute. And she sat with him and she told him about her life. She told him about the things she was dealing with, about the things she was doing. And he sat there. And Yancey's friend, to be honest, he had one simple reaction. I have never been so out of my depth in all my life, was basically what he thought. And so he asked, have you ever tried going to church? What he was really saying was, please tell me I'm not the only one trying to help here because I don't know what to do. Help. That's what was really going on here. But the woman's reaction, it's the reaction that was so striking. Church. Church. Why would I go there? I already feel bad about myself. They'd only make me feel worse. As he listened to his friend's story, Yancey sat back and thought, hold on a minute. Jesus. This was the kind of woman who ran to Jesus, not who was scared to come before him. What's gone wrong? Today, I'm going to be exploring a passage of Scripture, one of the most beautiful passages, one that I think holds a light up to human nature, serves as a caution to the church, and asks two simple questions that I'll ask you to keep in the back of your mind all through this talk. First, what is God like? And second, what are we like? I'd like you to turn, please, to John 
chapter 8. And we'll start at verse 2. I'll just give a moment for you to either look it up physically or on your phones. I'm actually using a physical Bible for a change rather than my phone. Unusual, that. No particular reason. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, the woman, this woman, was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. I love this, by the way. All attention is on him already. And, hmm, Jesus just settles down and starts writing. The Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote. Some people like to think he wrote a sort of ancient version of, I know what you did last summer to one of the Pharisees. I wouldn't actually be surprised if he just did a doodle. I honestly think that he was playing for time, not because he didn't know what to do, but because he wanted all attention to move from being focused on this woman onto him. The Pharisees had made a spectacle of this woman, but now here was Jesus drawing all attention back to him. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, I love the image here. I always picture it as Jesus just doodling and then, oh, oh, you're still here. I'd, probably he didn't do that. That's a bit too British a thing to do, isn't it? But that's how I picture it. Jesus, hmm? oh, you're still here, are you? If any one of you is without sin, you'll be first. Well, Again, he stepped down and wrote on the ground. <laughs> I'm doing something much more important right now. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Again, the NIV here is actually quite a poor translation. There's another word in the oldest manuscripts. It should really read, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Remember the questions I asked. What is God like? That's the most important question we can ask when we're reading this passage. What is God like? I like to think of this verse as almost a parable, an image of what it's like to come before God. And the image is particularly interesting because of that word that the NIV doesn't use, accusers. Those of you who know your Bibles a bit more will probably know that the name Satan 
literally means accuser. So when we start seeing the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, as the accusers, suddenly this whole scene takes on a very different dynamic. These religious men, these men who knew the law, who spent their lives standing for the law, who taught in the temple day and night, who were revered and honored by all the people as the men of God, they were standing in the place of the accuser. Hold on. There's something very wrong with this picture. Why? What's actually going on here? Well, what's going on is a trap. You see, Jesus ministered to women like this woman. As Philip Yancey rightly noted, people who were filled with fear, guilt, and shame, they didn't run away from Jesus, they ran to him. What was more? Yes, he spoke in the temple on occasion. But more often than not, he spoke on the streets. He spoke on the mountains. He went to where the people were. He walked down the beach teaching and preaching where the people were in their ordinary lives. He went to the people who would never darken the doors of the temple of God because they didn't ever believe they were worthy to be in God's presence. He went to those who honestly thought all they could expect from God was judgment and wrath. And he embraced them and he welcomed them. But the thing is, the bond of trust that allows people with guilt, shame and fear to come into the presence of God is a very fragile thing. The teachers of the law knew that. The minute Jesus participated in an act of judgment and wrath. If he had picked up a stone, then all those people he ministered to would have thought, well, I deserve the same treatment as that woman. Is all I'm going to get from him the same judgment that woman got? Is that all there is for me? Was I right to feel that I cannot even be safe with this man, with this Jesus? That bond of trust is so incredibly fragile. The moment judgmentalism, condemnation, and accusation creeps in, something breaks. The teachers of the law knew this. So they thought they'd got Jesus in a trap, a perfect trap, because if he took a stone, if he joined in with the execution, that was mandated by the law. They weren't wrong. That was the law. But if he did this, everything Jesus did in his ministry would be undermined, would be broken. Wow. The scale of this is quite dramatic when you realize the nature of the trap. The Pharisees didn't know it, though, but there's another question here. Because they didn't realize Jesus was God incarnate. So again, what is God like? When a sinner is brought into God's presence, what treatment can we expect? To put it another way, is the throne of God a throne of judgment, punishment, and wrath? 
Jonathan Edwards did a famous sermon that as the years pass, I'm disagreeing with more and more and more. The sermon was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Is that what God is like with sinners? Is he angry first and foremost? Jesus, in his ministry, demonstrated something very different. He demonstrated grace and mercy, a truth that in James we read, mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that verse. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That was Jesus to a T. How would he navigate this situation? How would he deal with the accusation that was in this place? First, he drew all attention to himself. All eyes should have been on this woman. She was a subject of scorn, of mockery, of shame. If she was caught in the act of adultery, they may not even have given her time to get dressed because they wanted her to be shamed. They wanted her to be judged. They wanted her name to be remembered forever as an example of this is the punishment you get if you sin. They wanted to make an example of her so that people would be too afraid to sin again. I love the fact the Bible doesn't tell us her name. That's deliberate. That's what the Pharisees wanted. They wanted her name to be known forever as a subject of shame. The Bible deliberately, in my view, omits her name and says, no, the focus here is on the one who is writing in the sand. The one who gets up and says to those Pharisees, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And suddenly the Pharisees knew they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. I, again, it's not there, but I imagine them already prepared, stones in their hands. I've done this before, I'm going to do it again. Uh, uh. Mm. Got me, storming off, furious. The trap hadn't worked. They didn't, and notice they've all left by the time Jesus speaks to the woman. The disciples, I'm guessing, only know about what happened next because Jesus told them. The Pharisees never even got to see the end of the story. That's how little judgment was in Jesus' attitude right now. He, he was basically, go away, accusers. Just go away. Got no time for you. And then he says to the woman, woman, where are your accusers? I love it. Treating her like a person. You see, this is what accusation and judgment does. It reduces a person until they are nothing more than the thing we dislike. It reduces them to the thing we are judging, to the thing we are condemning, to the thing we hate. We forget their personhood, their humanity, and so we can justify treating them in a way that after the event, we look back and think, hmm, I didn't like that. Oh, I don't like who I was just then. Or maybe worse still, 
We don't like who we were just then so much we think, right, I don't want to think about that. And so we repeat the pattern. That's what judgment and accusation does. It strips a person of their humanity. Jesus suddenly addresses the woman as a person. Woman, where are your accusers? They've they've gone. (laughs) She must have wondered what on earth was going on right now. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus says. Now here, here is the answer to our question of what is God like? What is God like when a sinner comes into his presence? You see, Jesus alone, Jesus alone met the criteria he had just established. He was perfect and without sin. He could have cast the first stone. He could even have used it as an illustration of his divinity to say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That would have been an utterly explicit claim to Godhood. Everyone would have understood what he was saying there. But he didn't. He was perfect and pure and he would not come in judgment, but rather in grace. You see, the throne of God, the throne that Jesus occupies, what kind of throne is it? Is it a throne of judgment, of anger, of wrath? It's a mercy seat. It's a throne of grace. It's a throne of forgiveness. It's a throne of pardon. In ancient times, a king had the ability to pardon criminals of their crimes. He would sit on his throne and he would reach out his hand and they would be pardoned, their sins forgiven, set free from prison. This is the throne of our God. It is a mercy seat. This is what our God is like. He is the one who loves. He is the one who forgives. Notice what came first. Forgiveness. Then he says, go now and leave your life of sin. The order is so important because we human beings, we are judgmental by nature. It's part of our humanity ever since the fall. At the Garden of Eden, what was the tree that they ate of? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of judgment. And when they ate of that tree, judgment entered into the human heart. And it's still there in every single one of us today. This tendency to judge, to condemn, to identify the things we don't like about a person, categorize them by that thing, reduce their humanity, and think I'm better than you. I sit in judgment over you. It is part of our human nature, our sinful nature, but it is that sinful nature that was put to death through Christ on the cross. It is not what we are supposed to be like anymore. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That was true of Christ. It is true of Christ. And when we, the church of Christ, are united with him, it is true of the church as well. The problem, though, I think, is that the church forgets this. We have Christianized a part of the sinful nature 
We've taken on a role that we were never meant to occupy and become accusers who say, look at that, look at that. I'll never forget, years ago at the co-op bank, a friend giving me a magazine that she'd been given by a group called Christian Voice that was ranting and raving about filth in the police force. And I remember just sitting there and something in my heart just breaking because I realized that to my friend, this was the voice of Christ ranting and raving about filth, reducing human beings to an attribute that could be judged and condemned, taking on the role of the accuser of the world. But remember what I said. This is the scary thing about such judgment. Accuser. Satan is the accuser. When the church takes on that role, yeah, it's a trap. It's a trap set by the devil himself. Because then, once we take on that role of accuser, we damage the sacred bonds of trust that would allow people who were feeling guilt and fear and shame to come into the presence of the King of Kings. We damage those bonds of trust. Ooh, that hurts. <laughs> now, full confession here. I'm preaching this sermon because it's a lesson I have had to learn and I am absolutely confident I am still learning. Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, I first read it 20 odd years ago now. Time flies when you're having fun. I read it, and it absolutely was like a dagger in my heart because I had been treating other people like that. I lived in a house with friends who were members of the Christian Union, and they'd been acting in ways I disagreed with, and I reduced them in my eyes until all I saw was the things they'd been doing, not their humanity. I judged. I became the accuser. I'm not beating, any, beating around the bush at all. I took on the wrong role here. Rather than represent the God of grace, I did the opposite. The irony, of course, is that we were trying to have what we called a Christian house. <laughs> and there wasn't a single bit of Christ-likeness in the way I was acting. I just didn't know it. The truth is, it is so easy for us to slip into that judgmental way. So easy. It is so easy for us to move into that place where we look at others with just judgment and condemnation, where we are accusers, first and foremost. When we do that, though, it has two effects. First, it banishes us from the presence of God. Notice who left the scene in this, in this story. The accusers left. Jesus' words meant they left. Maybe some left feeling guilty and ashamed themselves. Maybe others left in anger because they thought, she deserved it and he won't give her the judgment she deserves. Mm, why won't he just judge? They couldn't understand. They were trying to make God in their own image, in the image of wrathful man. 
There's a famous verse in Isaiah, for my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We quote it all the time. Do you know the context of it? It's a passage talking about God's tendency to forgive, about his eagerness to forgive. His ways are higher than our ways because he is the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in unfailing love. He is the God who is eager to forgive, eager to embrace. He is the God who is seated on a throne like no throne on earth because earthly kings, they pardoned occasionally. His is the throne of mercy and grace. Pardon is what he wants to give. That's our God. The challenge for us today is the second question. What are we like? Are we in connection to this God who loves, who forgives, who embraces, who welcomes? Or are we taking a different role in this story? There is one other point I want to make about judgment today, though. And it's one that did take me a while to accept. You see, the same God who pardoned the woman caught in adultery, he has pardoned for us as well. Maybe you look at your own life and you can think of occasions where you have been the accuser. Maybe you've been the accused. Maybe you're the one who's felt exposed, who's felt the shame, or maybe you're the one who pointed the finger and shamed doesn't matter. Right now, the God of grace is eager to pardon, to welcome, to embrace, to love. I had to come to a point eventually where I recognized that, yes, I'd made an absolute pig's ear of my friendships. I hadn't represented Christ. I had sinned. I had taken on a role I was not supposed to occupy. And I had to accept that God has forgiven me for that. You see, God's grace is enough. Enough for each one of us. No matter what it is we're coming with, no matter where we stand, no matter what we're dealing with, God's grace is enough. He is the Lord. And he is eager to forgive. So today... Today, in a moment, we're going to take communion. And I think it's appropriate to do it straight after the sermon. As we celebrate the truth. The truth that our gracious and compassionate God, he was willing to go to any lengths for us. That whatever our past may be, whatever our situations may be, whatever emotions we felt as we heard this sermon today, whatever roles in this story we have recognized ourselves playing in the past. Whatever it is, his grace is still there for us. His hand is reached out in pardon. This is for us. But as we take of the bread and drink of the wine, I didn't, wine, Rabina, let's be honest. As we do that, let's accept one other truth. That the God who loves us also loves the world 
Let's take this and remember that he does not come in wrath and judgment, but in grace, in mercy, in love. Let's bring those we love before God, confident that he loves them even more. Let's bring those who've hurt us, who've accused us before God, and ask him to work in their hearts and lives. Let's bring those who we have judged, who we have reduced down to their worst attributes in our eyes. Let's bring them before God as well and trust him to reach out into their lives. I'm just going to pray and then we'll do communion and worship as we do. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much that there's never been a sinner you turned away. Not me and not anyone. You're not in the business of turning sinners away. You're in the business of turning sinners into saints. So right now, Lord God, I bring myself before you and I thank you that you have forgiven my sins. That I am not a sinner anymore, but I am a saint saved by grace. And right now I pray that for each and every one of us, we will realize that truth as well, that we are sinners saved by grace. That you have changed our natures on a fundamental level. Right now, God, we bring our faults and flaws before you that are still there. And we ask you to help us with them. Help us to be ministers of grace, agents of reconciliation, ministers of mercy. Not accusers, not judges. Help us to move beyond the, the sinfulness of that position and stand in this story where you stood because we are in Christ Jesus. Help us to reach out to this fallen world, not with condemnation, but with love because you so loved the world, so loved the world that you gave, that you gave. Lord Jesus, we come before you today and we don't take that for granted. We thank you. Make it more real to us today again, we pray. In Jesus' name.